for Gregory and Dunstan, George Herbert, and John Keeble, for George MacDonald, and for all who praise God in poetry and song. Thanks be to God. So my name is Chris Norton. Most of you don't know me, uh, mostly because I take the usual All Souls introversion to extremes where no man has gone before. Um, I support myself in a number of different ways as a tutor, freelance editor, and so on. Uh, but my real vocation is fiction writing. Um, I spend a lot of time exploring issues of faith and doubt through a storytelling mode known as magical realism, um, where some kind of uh, miraculous reality is rendered uh, very earthly and real. Um, and so what I try to do as a writer who is a Christian is to take this kind of language and to use it to complicate our concerns about how to live, what kind of world we're living in, um, and to challenge the reader in various kinds of ways. Um, I actually think one of the best models of this kind of writing is the incarnation. Here is an actual historical figure who is resurrected. Um, and I think that with that kind of a story, you have to come to an awareness of what you believe. Um, this is someone who casts out demons and yet in his human weakness sweats out his torment in drops of blood. Jesus is never just one thing or the other. Um, George MacDonald is not a magical realist. He's usually thought of as a forerunner of the fantasy genre, um, which is a little different, but I think that that intersection of worlds and that working out of faith and of our questions through imagination was sacred to him as well. Um, I think that even if today we are working in different modes of storytelling, people like me can look back on those pioneers like McDonald who first struggled to capture the miraculous in fiction and we can study them and learn from them and honor what they did because the church has a need of them. And I am so thankful to be here in a place where that is welcomed. Um, I come from another Christian tradition where as an artist and a Christian, there was a kind of split down the middle of me. And so when I found All Souls and discovered you guys and discovered the ways that All Souls nourishes the embodied and imaginative practices that are necessary for the growth of the spiritual life, that was a very healing experience for me. Um, I do have a manuscript, and I hope that if needed, y'all will ask questions, and I will try to answer them if I know the answers. Um, so I want to begin by reading a passage from George MacDonald's Unspoken Sermons. The aspiring child is often checked by the dull disciple who has learned his lessons so imperfectly that he's never got beyond his school books. Full of fragmentary rules, he has perceived the principle of none of them. The child draws near to him with some outburst of unusual feeling, some scintillation of a lively hope, some wide-reaching imagination that draws into the circle of religious theory, the world of nature. The child comes with his heart full, and the answer he receives from the dull disciple is, God has said nothing about that in his word, therefore we have no right to believe anything about it. But has he indeed nothing to do with such? Uh, he says, not only does that degree of peace of mind without which action is impossible depend upon the answers to these questions, but my conduct must itself correspond to the answers. 
I will wait, but not till I have knocked. I will be patient, but not till I have asked. I will seek until I find. He has something for me. My prayer shall go up unto the God of my life. There is more hid in Christ than we shall ever learn, but they that begin first to inquire shall soonest be gladdened with revelation for the slowness of his disciples troubled him of old. I think it's important to show the human cost of some of the ideas that to McDonald were so troubling that his peace of mind was in the balance. Um, that's difficult to do because uh, these are ideas that in some cases are very ingrained in Christian culture today. Um, I remember being a very young kid and asking my dad about the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, which in that part of the South was just thought of as the gospel. Um, there wasn't a distinction made between the atonement theory and the message of Christ. Uh, and he explained it to me and I cried because it was so dismaying to me that God's sense of justice would demand innocent blood. Um, it didn't make logical sense to me and it seemed to make less of God and that made the world seem a little colder and less alive. Later on as a teenager, I was trained to go door to door with a gospel presentation. I think one of the transitions between some of the points was before you hear the good news, you have to hear the bad news. Um, with presentations like that, sin ceases to be the primary issue, almost as though sin would be okay if God were more amicable, which I think is problematic. <laughs> um, today, as I learn to pray in this, the Ignatian spiritual tradition, I am able to pinpoint that experience uh, as one of desolation, which basically means that it was moving me away from faith, hope, and love. Um, I felt that God had been lowered and the universe set wrong, and I tried unsuccessfully to adjust my sense of justice to it. But if I understand the beloved apostle correctly, then the more we understand the truth, the more it will set us free and move us toward union with Christ. All the spheres of our existence interpenetrate spirit, heart, and mind, and the mental truth of God does not desolate the spirit. But as I grew up, grew up, I struggled with the disjunction between the God I came to know in prayer and the one I was trying to believe in. This is where All Souls came in, in the Wheaton College English Department, and George MacDonald. I came to believe in the God who had been revealing himself to me for my entire life. I am interested in talking about MacDonald because I don't think I'm a freak. I don't think... I'm the only person who has struggled with these kinds of disjunctions within the self. And I think that people like George MacDonald and St. Ignatius show us that it is not only okay, but it is necessary that we listen to affect and imagination to discern where something has gone wrong in our thinking and therefore in ourselves. Jesus has been there with us. He knew what it was to be alone and confused to know what he must do and yet to pray, may this cup be taken from me before he was offered into the hands of angry sinners. We are in good company as we wait out our confusion. So this is the place where I feel the need to give a caveat. I am not a philosopher or theologian. 
Um, George MacDonald was a theologian as well as a poet, novelist, and pioneering fantasy writer, and a failed preacher. Um, but I am no theologian, and in what I argue, um, we need to consider in his work. I am sometimes out of my depth. MacDonald is that child who asks the brilliant questions and expands our sense of creedally orthodox faith. Um, you will hear some Calvinistic people calling him a heretic, but it is because he doesn't accept certain reformed ideas. Um, and this is where I'm reminded mostly by Father Martin um, when I talked to him about giving this talk of the early dispute between the Anglicans and Presbyterians, in which the Presbyterians said we can't use it in worship if it's not in the Bible, and the Anglicans said we can use it if it's not prohibited. Um, and then there's MacDonald who would just argue that the Presbyterians had the Bible wrong. <laughs> and so I think that MacDonald is an important figure for us to study as Anglicans. Uh, he spent most of his life in the Church of England and valued the embodied and imaginative in worship the way we do. And his questioning of ingrained ideas and the priority he puts on faith in Christ over state religions or would-be state religions is direly needed in our historical moment. That said, he said some controversial stuff, and I ask that you think and pray about these things for yourself. In other words, I beg you to do this at home. <laughs> that said, let's check out some things we haven't thought about before. Um, at this point... Um, it has become conventional to talk about McDonald as a mythmaker and skip over the juicy doctrine. Not only is this misguided and patronizing, but it is boring. <laughs> when I talk about McDonald, some people say he portrays goodness like no one else. Then there are the ones who say, wasn't he a heretic? My favorite response, though, was the one who said, he must have been the shroom-smoking inkling. <laughs> historical disclaimer he was no inkling I'm reasonably sure he didn't smoke shrooms he was born in 1824 to Scottish Calvinists and later became a preacher when he was fired from this preaching job it was supposedly because of his doctrine Timothy Larson though has a new book out arguing that this is a lie McDonald was fired because he was a terrible pastor <laughs> And so now he was free to live the starving artist life and support his 11 children by means of odd jobs, which is a pretty classic move if you are going to create enduring works of literature. <laughs> um, but I think that he may have seen himself as having been silenced. Um, that would make sense of the title of the Unspoken Sermons, which is his multi-volume collection of theological essays. Um, and I don't think he would have even wanted me to call it theology. He thought the highest way to speak about God was by symbols, and that the great heresy of the church involved trusting in our formulas and notions of God and in our theological views rather than in the Father who loves us, the Spirit who guides us, and the person of Jesus Christ. He protested bibliolatry in all its forms and insisted that we trust the God who speaks directly to each of us. Uh, McDonald's scholarship is not in great shape. No one wants to write papers about a pious Victorian forerunner of the fantasy genre. 
But if you actually read him, his fiction is quite a bit weirder than that. Fic uh, Lilith is a symbolic treatise setting forth a universalist notion of divine providence, and Fantasties is a kind of proto-surrealist fusion of fairy tale and Arthurian romance. Um, sometimes in the Christian world, though, the resistance goes deeper. Um, ultimately, I think that some people who have not read MacDonald assume that he didn't have a strong view of sin. I think that onto anyone accused of universalism, it becomes easy to project a kind of bleeding heart thinking that says people do wrong, but is God really going to punish them? And in the case of George MacDonald, his enemies do accuse him of universalism, his friends accuse him of universalism, and I accuse him of universalism. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've read the unspoken sermons, or probably if you've read Lilith, you know MacDonald has, if anything, a stronger view of sin than his opponents. It is this Christ-like hatred of sin that leads him to write in his sermon, The Consuming Fire, Nothing is inexorable but love, for love loves unto purity. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Where loveliness is incomplete and love cannot love its fill of loving, it spins itself to make more lovely, that it may love more. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind, must be destroyed and our God is a consuming fire. So yes, he is a universalist who believes in hell and in the judgment. David Bentley Hart, the Eastern Orthodox theologian, says he was by temperament and rational conviction a universalist, um, but for him, this was not a problem. Elsewhere, he says that MacDonald's unspoken sermons are indispensable masterpieces and calls MacDonald the greatest theologian ever tried in English and one of only two theologians with whom it is morally inexcusable to disagree. <laughs> I always wanted to know who the other one was. Now I think it's probably David Bentley Hart. <laughs> the book by MacDonald that adult readers are most likely to pick up is Fantasties. This has to do with C.S. Lewis's story about reading Fantasties on a train at about age 16 and experiencing a sense of holiness for the first time. He calls it a light shadow. That night, my imagination was baptized, he writes. Not unnaturally, the rest of me took longer. Not unnaturally, because conversion begins with the imagination MacDonald believed that imagination is an integral part of the way we conceptualize the world around us in the first place. This book that led Lewis to holiness is anything but sanctimonious. Featuring Celtic nature spirits, it is a bizarre anti-novel of existential confusion and unfulfilled sexual longing. One thing I will not give you is a map of fairyland, which is the setting. This is a shifting protean landscape in which the inner world becomes externalized. In fact, for MacDonald, the world was a work of art that corresponded to our inner workings as human beings, thus the proto-surrealist element. Um, there's also a similarity to allegory, but it's a weird allegory. It works by a kind of subterranean dream logic in, the, in which the links between ideas are anything but linear and the meanings are allowed to multiply almost out of control. 
landscape and meaning are always in flux. And this flux was important to MacDonald as a poet of sanctification. God is perpetually raising all things to the state in which they will be capable of communion with him. As we come near to God and are saturated with his presence, we attain a greater degree of life and existence. And as Anodos journeys deeper into fairyland, he meets all kinds of people waiting out, a kind of eschaton in which they will become fully human. There is a marble statue who becomes a woman. Even the trees in fairyland will one day be men and women. There is a myth of the pre-existence of the soul about a distant planet of men and winged women who long to be reborn as sexual beings and to meet again in another life. One of the most interesting characters is the knight of the rusted armor, Sir Percival, who must atone for a hot night with the maiden of the alder tree by performing noble deeds throughout the forest. And as we meet Percival again and again, he becomes an increasingly heroic figure. To him, Anodos is at last apprenticed. Anodos becomes his squire. Percival becomes the Christ-like man he was meant to be, and Anodos calls him the elder brother, one of MacDonald's favorite names for Christ. MacDonald is not saying that Christ sinned. Rather, in Percival's redemptive arc, he goes from a wretched sinner to someone who is capable of being Christ to Anodos. Thus, the knight of the rusted armor is both Christ and sinner, and he points to the way that as we are made one with Christ, we may come to participate in the salvation of our brothers and sisters. So this is where we leave fairyland and enter what's called the realm of the seven dimensions, which is what it's become by the time he writes Lilith near the end of his life, close to 40 years later. MacDonald is not very good at naming his worlds. I think that name is pretty cheesy. Um, it is also where we get into universal reconciliation. Um, Lilith is his late Gothic masterpiece, and it's much more conceptually rich. Okay, so let's take that realm of seven dimensions as a starting point. It's not as dumb as it sounds. The world of Lilith is very much one where planes of reality overlap. That tree stands on the hearth of your kitchen, Mr. Raven tells Vane, and grows nearly straight up your chimney. So he's, he's standing in his kitchen, but he's outside, um, experiencing a different plane of reality. A single thing would sometimes seem to be and mean many things, we're told at one point, with an uncertain identity at the heart of them, which kept altering their look. Without a doubt, for instance, that I was actually regarding a scene of activity, I might be, at the same moment, in my consciousness, aware that I was perusing a metaphysical argument. This actually makes Lilith, by MacDonald's definition, a work of mysticism. He believed that words could only be approximations of thoughts and feelings. And in the unspoken sermons, he writes that a mystical mind is one that essentially prosecutes thought about truth embodied by dealing with symbols after logical forms. His own definition is actually a little wordier. As far as I can tell, he believed that abstract language was limiting because it only cut one way, and so he sought to embody truth through clusters of images that suggested many levels of meaning, often playing them against each other, as he did in the Night of the Rusted Armor. Unlike most other allegorical stories I've read, or near allegorical stories I've read, Lilith is full of characters who are alive enough to break out of the fixity of meaning that is a pitfall in this genre. 
Uh, one of my favorites is Mr. Raven, who goes around as a bird sometimes. In one of the early scenes, Mr. Raven plucks a worm from the ground with his beak and throws it into to the air, and it sprouts magnificent wings and flies away. You mistake, Mr. Raven, cries our protagonist. Worms are not the larvae of butterflies. Never mind, says Raven. I am not a reading man at present. <laughs> and as we follow him into the other world, Mr. Raven turns out to be both Adam and Christ, both the primeval sinner and the one who returns to save us from our sins. Like the knight of the rusted armor, he presents a kind of plan, plan of salvation by deification. He runs a hostelry out on the blasted heath where everyone must come to die and where we sleep and die for hundreds of years at a time. His business is to help us die into life, and the one who has once died need die nevermore. Part of the strangeness of Lilith consists in just who it is who undergoes resurrection. Lilith herself will one day sleep the sleep of death. But for now, this is the first wife of Adam out of Jewish mythology. She is a blood-sucking night spirit who roams, roams the streets as a spotted leopardess seeking for whom she may devour. Far away from the city where Lilith rules is a community of children who never grow up. There's a prophecy that when they grow up, they will dethrone her, but she has stolen their water so that they cannot cry. And it is precisely tears that are needed for them to grow strong. Lilith is always seeking to destroy them, but they have a protector, and this is Mara, the Lady of Sorrows. And she's one of the most interesting near allegorical characters I've ever encountered because she's a kind of embodiment of suffering and yet she is the guardian of children. She keeps white leopards that are always going out to foil Lilith's plans. Suffering is the protector of the people of God, it would appear for MacDonald. And in the end, it is the Lady of Sorrows who prevails. Over the course of one long and brutal night, Lilith is made to see what she has made of herself and her own evil is so dreadful that she repents. The mercy of God extends even to the wicked, but for them, it takes the form of the consuming fire. For MacDonald, that is the only form God's mercy can take toward those who set themselves against him. Lilith yields the water in her hand, and the children are allowed to grow up. In the eschatological vision of resurrection at the end of the novel, even the serpents are metamorphosed into birds. Raven has no regard for what the creature was before, we leave our past behind and are changed into the true self God intended. So we've seen something of MacDonald's narrative work, but I also want to look at how he deals with some of these ideas and this theory of the atonement that caused me so much anguish as a kid. Um, he spoke up against this because to him it was no trivial thing. It was an affront to the character of God, he believed. Your portrait of God, he writes, is an evil caricature of the face of Christ. To believe in vicarious sacrifice, which is his name for it, is to think, to take refuge with the Son from, who, from the righteousness of the Father. In a sermon titled Justice, MacDonald uses a thought experiment to argue that the usual form of substitutionary atonement is based on a problematic concept of justice. He tells us that even if the law is good and thoroughly administered, it does not necessarily follow that justice is done. The thought experiment goes like this. 
Say I have an expensive Rolex watch. A thief takes it out of my pocket, I chase him down and drag him to court, and he is sentenced to a just imprisonment. Do I walk home satisfied? The thief may have had justice done to him, but where's my watch? I'm still wronged. So this is the point where we begin to ask, what can set the wrong right? What if the watch is found and returned to me? Or what if the court sentences the thief to pay back the money the watch was worth? Uh, McDonald does not seriously consider that justice has been done at this point because to him the need for reconciliation between two human beings is so much more serious. But suppose the thief repents. He is not able to restore the watch. He's gotten rid of it, but he comes to me to apologize and asks me to accept what little he is able to bring. And this is where, according to MacDonald, the thief has done more than merely atoned for the price of the watch. He has recognized our brotherhood as human beings and begun to heal the relational wrong between us, um, which strikes me as a Christ-like way of looking at the issue. At this point, so he asks, at this point, would I feel it necessary to inflict some kind of suffering on him as demanded by righteousness? Um, so you see where this is going. Um, and, um, of course, this is not debunking the, the gospel itself, that Jesus in his death and resurrection restores us to God. He thought that this atonement theory was out of touch with the priorities of the gospel story. Um, I do find it noteworthy that it seems that the argument relies on what I believe is a distinctively Christian concern for reconciliation between persons. Um, McDonald is able to make the argument because his imaginative sense, sense of the situation is shaped by a distinctively Christian set of priorities. Okay, so McDonald has built an interesting argument against this idea that has become so entrenched in our culture. Um, what does he set up in its place? In justice, he makes a very strange move, which is that even though he seems to have his own theory, he refuses to tell us what it is. What theory do you propose to, to substitute in its stead? Um, he has his imaginary interlocutor ask him. In the name of truth, he says, none. I will send out no theory of mine to rouse afresh little whirlwinds of dialogistic dust, hiding the master and talk about him. To the imaginary interlocutor who asks what then he believes, MacDonald replies, I believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, my elder brother, my Lord and Master. I believe that he has a right to my absolute obedience, wherensoever I know or shall com come to know his will, that to obey him is to ascend the pinnacle of my being, that not to obey him would be to deny him. I believe that he died that I might die like him, Die to any ruling power in me but the will of God. Live ready to be nailed to the cross as he was, if God will it. I believe that he is my savior from myself and from all that he has come, that has come of loving myself, from all that God does not love and would not have me love, all that is not worth loving. That he died, that the justice, the mercy of God might have its way in me, making me just as God is just, merciful as he is merciful, perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. St. Paul would tell us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
in reaffirming the truth of the gospel while rejecting the need to put forth his own atonement theory, which I believe he could probably have done, MacDonald proclaims that he knows nothing but Christ crucified. Not everyone can do this the same way because we need systematic theologians. But I would argue that the darkness into which he steps here, this cloud of unknowing, is the darkness of prayer. Lastly, someone suggested I address the conditions that allow McDonald to develop in the first place. First, I want to acknowledge that McDonald, in his own day, insisted on rehabilitating atheist poets as deeply Christian writers. Um, <laughs> I think that we, too, should be on the lookout for any writing in which we find that divine sweetness. Um, if you want a concrete example of a recent book and a contemporary writer who I think is kind of like McDonald, I think of Laris by Eugene Vodolaskin. The translation came out in 2016, it was written in 2013, won a lot of the major book awards in Russia. Um, and it uses magical realism to explore the orthodox faith in 15th century Russia. It is an incredibly rich and innovative book. I've never seen a book do time the way it does. And you will see Middle English in the translation smashed up against contemporary slang because it's exploring this like relative concept of, of time. Um, and it's about an herbalist who travels the countryside healing the sick in order to atone for the sins of his girlfriend who died in childbirth uh, without receiving the sacraments. And the book has a thick and earthy sense of holiness. It has that light shadow that um, C.S. Lewis was talking about with MacDonald. Um, for something a little closer to home, I think that what is needed for us to produce a MacDonald or a Vodolaskin is the recognition of the embodied and imaginative practices that contrib contribute to morally powerful art as necessary also to spiritual formation and the development of theology in the first place. Um, that these things are all of one piece. And I think that as Anglicans, this is something we're fairly good at. There's a reason that I'm here at All Souls. Um, this moves me toward the Eucharist, contemplative prayer, and in my case, backpacking. And the more I learn about prayer, the more I realize it's actually very similar to fiction writing because you get by yourself and you imagine things and you reach out your roots and try to feel out where the sacred is. These things require an openness to the unknown. It is necessary to have faith that God has given us cohesive imaginations that with guidance and diligence will arrive at the truth. And it is necessary to allow our imaginative experiences, little things like empathy or prayer, to reframe our preconceived doctrinal formulations and if necessary, to serve as a corrective to them. So this is where I open it up for questions. Okay, yeah, so the question was, can I, can I read again his definition of how he views Christ and how it starts with obedience? Um, let me find it in here. Also, could you tell us where we could find Oh, okay, sure. Um, so it is, that, that's also in um, Justice, which is in the third volume of the Unspoken Sermons. Um, okay. 
So his imaginary interlocutor has asked him what atonement theory he wants to propose. Um, he says, in the name of truth, none, I will send out no theory of mine to rouse afresh little whirlwinds of dialogistic dust, hiding the master and talk about him. Um, the interlocutor asks him, okay, then what do you believe? And he says, I believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, my elder brother, my Lord and master. I believe that he has a right to my absolute obedience, whereinsoever I know or shall come to know his will. And MacDonald also believed that it was a mistake to think of faith as um, a set of doctrines rather than obedience. Um, so he says um, that to obey him is, the, is to ascend the pinnacle of my being and that not to obey him would be to deny him. I believe that he died that I might die like him, die to any ruling power in me but the will of God, live ready to be nailed to the cross as he was, if God will it. I believe that he is my savior from myself and from all that, he, that has come of loving myself, from all that God does not love and would not have me love, all that is not worth loving, that he died, that the justice, the mercy of God might have its way with me, making me just as God is just, merciful as he is merciful, perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Matt? Chris, thank you so much. There is a lot of uh, dialogistic dust that swept up the evangelical community about five, eight years ago in regards to universalism. And you have transcended that. That is, we are not picking a camp, and that McDonald is so much deeper, and you've gone so much deeper. So clinging to his perception helps us navigate this. As someone who's new to his fiction, my question Okay, um, so I, I would advise um, starting with uh, The Golden Key, um, which is one of his short fairy tales. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's like the length of, of a longer short story. Um, and it's, it's this beautiful kind of masterful fairy tale about um, looking for uh, I, there, there's a boy who finds a golden key at the end of the rainbow, and he's trying to find the um, the world that uh, that the that the shadows come from. There's this sort of lake of of shadows that he walks through, and uh, as if there there have been these shadows cast from higher, and he's trying to find uh, the world that the shadows come from. So I, I really resonate with McDonald's skepticism of very neat systematic theologies, you know, need, needing for, a, for it to make sense uh, to us. I am also very sympathetic with his refusal to offer his own, right? It's sort of purely negative. Yeah. I am also an economist, so I'm, I'm used to negative critiques of economics. So you know, you assume all these crazy things, right? With nothing offered in so I'm aware of my own sort of hypocrisy. Yeah. Thinking like, well, if you're going to critique what I do, what's the alternative? So I'm guilty of this too. If I don't like these these neat systematic theologies that don't offer anything in return, 
return. It's a sort of purely negative criticism, right? And yeah. I think you, you say something very important, like, but we need systematic theology. Yeah. So the trick for me, and I wonder if you or McDonald have a sense on this, is like, well, what's the appropriate compromise then? Like, what, is, what would McDonald or you, your reading of him, say about the appropriate role for these kinds of ideas if we are more inclined to be sort of to like embrace yeah. imagination and, and a, you know, a, a sort of less confident, intellectually confident approach to these things? Yeah, okay. Um, I am not sure that I have an answer for that. McDonald goes a little bit further in um, the direction of thinking that you can't codify theology than I am comfortable going. Um, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm not totally sure. I think that he associated, um, quote, the theologians with, uh, with an attitude that um, that he critiques, but that I don't know that necessarily has to go with this uh, more uh, systematic approach to theology. Um, so I I don't I don't really know. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think he would say that. Um, George MacDonald is a character in my favorite book, C.S. Lewis, The Book of Force. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you might be able to talk about what you think Lewis got from MacDonald and why MacDonald shows up in, in The Great Divorce. Um, yeah, so, so what Lewis got from MacDonald and uh, why MacDonald shows up in The Great Divorce. Um, I do think that the the vision of the afterlife that we get in the Great Divorce is very McDonald esque. Um, that, so that's probably part of the reason um, you have these these spirits who are in hell because they refuse to give up um, their various sins and things. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and, and but then at the same time you have um, you have the the angels coming to the, or actually no they're going to the angels and then the angels come down to from the mountains right um, and uh, and so you have this this continual wooing of of these spirits of the damned by God um, I think that one one place where Lewis differs from McDonald is that um, I think Lewis posits that there's a there's a certain he he thinks that there's probably a certain point where 
like they they don't get a chance anymore. Um, and I, well, okay, I'm I'm not remembering this very well because I didn't reread this for for the talk, but I I, I think I do remember reading something in Lewis where. Um, where, where there's there's some sort of a cutoff line, uh, so that they aren't allowed to sort of torment the people in heaven forever with their their disobedience and their their inability to, um, and with the the with God's not being able to bring them to Himself. Um, but yeah. Um, it, anyway, so, sorry. Did uh, did that? Answer your question? Okay. Um, so, so how, how that, um, cloud of unknowing is actually prayer. Okay. Um, so, well, I mean, obviously there's, he, he, he probably knew of the, you know, the cloud of unknowing. Um, but, um, I think that what I would, what I would say is his sort of recitation of, of what he believes about, Jesus um, in in justice that that I read um, is much closer to what he thinks about God uh, than than the need to like codify and speculate, and so I I think that um, what what I meant by that is that he is. He's giving up the need to speculate, and he is choosing to submit himself to the mystery. Um, and I, the reason that I um, said that both prayer and fiction writing were like that is, is that in both cases, you are stepping into something that you don't yet understand. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I gave up reading McDonald like five pages in when I was a wee child, and now I'm kind of ashamed. Um, <laughs> I'm reinvited, which is good. Um, but I, it was so fascinating to hear you sort of discuss his not only just elevation of imagination as almost a spiritual task, um, but also it just was, I don't know, it just it seems like such a healing perspective that he's offering us, you know, um, even with his seven dimensions, right? It's like he's deconstructing the way that we see things to then reconstruct them in a more expansive way. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if you could um, give us, I know I'm also jealous of book recommendations, um, and I'm wondering if you have any other, whether contemporary or ancient authors or figures, thinkers, who maybe do a similar um, task for us in expanding that sort of elevating the imagination as a spiritual realm. Yeah. Um, so um, I've in, I, 
I mentioned Fodolaskin. I haven't read any of his nonfiction, but I, I definitely find um, that he's doing something like that in, in Laris. Um, I think Flannery O'Connor, for sure, would be one of my favorites. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Flannery O'Connor. Um, yeah, she, she's where I, I got part of this um, perspective that, that comes in toward the end, um, for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that there are also some, I, I think there are all kinds of writers that we can, we can get something like this from, but she's, she's the main one that comes to mind for me. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you.